be who you are. And that's one thing that you do such a beautiful job of is be who you are. And, and because students aren't going to believe it, why would they listen to what you have to say and knowledge transfer if they think you're a phony and a weirdo fake right? Like they're, <laughs> they're just like, who is this clown person that's talking to me, right? Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witts. Now, Cassie and I are doctoral students here at the University of Alabama, specifically in the Experimental Psychology program, where we're concentrating in social psychology. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, this is the podcast for you. And welcome back, beautiful people. Hello, so, hello, hello. <laughs> there we go. I like that. <laughs> I was going to say, Cass, we're kind of doing this recording a bit backwards, right? So, like, today's a very special episode, very special recording, because we're actually doing our first interview, or we just mm-hmm. did our first interview. Yeah. And you would think, you know, like how time works, you would start with the introduction, and then you would do the interview, and so the interview just chronologically follows um, but you and I decided to do the interview first and we're like, you know what? We can record the intro after the fact and just kind of we'll edit this in the beginning. It's fine. The magic of editing. But yeah, we actually got to talk to two very special people today and we're really excited to share them with you. Yeah, two of our favorite teachers in the whole world um, were our two instructors of teaching of psychology here at the University of Alabama, Dr. Ansley Gilpin and Dr. Alexa Tollett. Um, Both of them are associate professors in the Department of Psychology here, and Ansley is actually our director of, of graduate studies. Both of them are just amazing, inspiring teachers. Um, and they train our teachers here. Um, and we were very, very lucky to have them come on the podcast today. Definitely. They are essentially meta teachers. They teach those who teach. Um, Cassie, I haven't asked you this before, but like, who was your TOP instructor? Right. Cause they sometimes switch you off. Cause I had Ansley. Mm-hmm. I had Alexa. You had Alexa. So we got both their experiences. And like mm-hmm. I said, I can definitely vouch for Ansley and I'm sure you can definitely vouch for our mentor as well. So it's yeah. like, it's really cool talking to them, especially since they're incredibly busy people. Mm-hmm. And we're asking them to interview through a summer after the semester just ended. And they're like, they probably like, I just wanted to spend time with my family and like, you know, yeah not do interviews (laughs) like i just want to live my life ansley does some interesting work where she's a cognitive development psychologist i think she works i think her lab's called the kids lab yep the kids Um, and and we're gonna like link their websites for both of them for those of you who are interested but she really looks at imagination and like play in children and looks at that as a cognitive skill and what that's associated with, which is really cool because she's just extremely passionate. And like, you know, how some people are activists in the political realm. She definitely is that, but like, she's definitely an activist for like kids. And I'm like, you know, it's hard to like really go against that, right? Like who's going to be anti-child protection? So I'm like, she does some real cool advocacy work. But then we also have obviously our direct mentor that we mentioned, Alexa, who's meta scientist, very involved, has her own podcast that we can possibly link. She has two, um, one that she finished up and the second one that's ongoing. So that's two beers for psychologists that's ongoing. And then the black goat is the one that finished about like a year and a half ago. Um, so if you really like what they're saying or you want to learn more about them, just click those links. Uh, 
But other than that, I hope you all enjoy the interview. Uh, Cassie, any last words? Uh, keep on corrupting the youth. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you're cringing me, Cassie. You're cringing me. All right. So next time you're going to hear our voices, there might be some a little bit of music in between. You get to hear Dr. Ansley Gilpin and Dr. Alexa Tullet. See you later. Hello, 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 beautiful people. Welcome back. So with us, we have the two people we mentioned beforehand, Ansley and Alexa. And so Cassie and I, we're going to be starting our first interview with y'all. So, you know, be kind to us. Um, but I think your first general question, you know, especially if people like don't know who you are, is could you give us an introduction? So basically, can you give us a background on your education, kind of like how you were trained, your current research interests, and like how you got to where you are now here at UA? first, Ansley. Okay. Um, I'm Ansley Gilpin. I am a developmental psychologist, um, an associate professor at the University of Alabama. And I um, originally, right out of undergrad, um, was a software trainer. And I was, um, so I was trained in corporate training and did that for a while. And then, and then went to graduate school because I, I just really wanted to be a psychologist. So I went to graduate school and um, so I've always really enjoyed uh, kind of learning about pedagogical techniques. And um, I just think it's really interesting. So it's a little background. And what do you do research on as well? Is it on pedagogy or I believe you're not, developing not as much. I'm a, a cognitive developmental psychologist. So I look at how children learn and how they're set up for success in terms of their overall um, well-being, but specifically in terms of their imagination and how they develop imaginative skills, which is a cognitive skill related to general cognitive functioning as well. Very cool. What about you, Alexa? Um, so I went to I went to school for psychology, so I've never like experienced anything outside of psychology. Um, I did my PhD in Toronto, and then I moved to Alabama. Um, I'm trained as a social psychologist, um, and I sort of did a bait and switch when I got hired at Alabama. So I told them I was a psychophysiologist, which was sort of true at the time, um, but since then have basically abandoned psychophysiology as an approach and now do more like research on metascience. And I would say that I do a little bit of research on pedagogy, but really that's you too. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I feel like somewhere on the website, there's a picture of you, Alexa, with just like an EEG cap somewhere. I don't know where it is, but it's somewhere in my memory. Yep. I thought I had gotten rid of all of those. And I had scrubbed the system. I was a little worried when I first came to work with you. I was like, oh no, she's going to make me learn how to do this, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> um, okay. So our next question is, how are you trained as teachers? So like as grad students, did you have like a teaching of psychology class or like, did you have any formal training in the teaching of psychology? And then based on like your experiences and your training, like how did that influence your current teaching philosophy? Well, um, I could answer this because my answer is short. So basically the answer to how I was trained to be a teacher is I wasn't pretty much. Um, so in my grad program, like teaching really wasn't emphasized. Um, and so, and my, my advisor, Mickey, um, he was really a research focused kind of psychologist. And so, um, and he knew that, 
to get a job at like an R1 school or something like that, that the more basically the more time you can spend on research and the less time you can spend on teaching, the more you'll be sort of like recognized in the hiring process, at least at the time. Um, and for the kinds of jobs that, um, that he thought I would want. And I thought I would want at the time. Um, so my only teaching experience in grad school was I co-taught a seminar class. Um, and even that was sort of like discouraged, like, um, so I got like a tiny bit of teaching experience, but there was no like designing a class or coming up with my own assignments. I just sort of like did basically somebody was on maternity leave and I sort of have took over the class with somebody else. Um, and then when I got to Alabama, um, I guess they just sort of assume that you can teach once you get here. Um, so there's, <laughs> there's no training. I think probably TAs get more training. Um, I never had like a TOP type of class. Um, and I think you asked something about like how that affected our, our teaching or something like that, which for me, it was just like, uh, I think I was quite a bad teacher for a while <laughs> because I was mostly learning through, um, trial and error. Ansley's shaking her head, but she doesn't, she doesn't remember. There was a reason that I only taught social science one time. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> no, I don't believe you. I was here. I remember you were great at it from the go. And one of the reasons that you're great at it is because you're interesting, right? So I, I actually was trained um, both corporate and then um, and then my graduate program at the University of Texas at Austin also had a um, pedagogy class. So it worked a little differently than ours at the University of Alabama, but we um, first took the class and then we picked a teaching mentor and that teaching mentor mentored us through our first teaching experience. And at the time, it was usually our only teaching experience. You really were lucky to get one Um so um, that was my experience. So I had um, some a limited experience, but I think that the corporate experience and training before was was pretty useful. Kind of what went into the, I guess, corporate training, as well as kind of like, you know, your teaching philosophy. Now I know like when we took POP with you, you even had us like kind of figure out our own philosophy and like help us write that down. So I was kind of curious of like what your personal one was. Oh, my tr personal. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I probably should have rem reminded myself about my personal teaching philosophy. No, in general, I think so. One of the um, at the time when I don't know what they still teach in corporate training, but at the time, a big point that they made that I almost every training I ever went to about training, you know, about pedagogy was that you have to make it relevant to the learner. So it needs to be whatever you're teaching them needs to be relevant, ideally applicable, um, interesting. And I don't mean edutainment, like, you know, you're not, you know, but rather like useful and actually engaging and interesting. Right. Um, and so I think that that's, um, a tenet of my teaching philosophy is I try to make the students, um, give them examples how they can apply it to their life, but also try to encourage them to apply these principles to their lives and their future career goals so that they, you know, have some direct connection to the material a little bit better. And it's kind of a, a side question based off both y'all's responses. I know, Alexa, you said that you kind of like half co-taught um, or co-taught with someone during graduate student. And then, Ansley, I think you said during your experience, you only taught one course. Do you feel like that's, I guess, enough? So like for someone, like, do you feel like 
one, do most students, and I, I don't have a general idea of like the prevalence of this. So like, do you feel like most grad students do at least teach around once? And then also, do you feel like that one time is enough? Or like, do you feel like there should be, if you could change it more or less based off if it's an R1 institution, about like how much teaching experience someone should get in their like graduate student career? I guess in some ways, I think like you can't really prepare for teaching without teaching. And the first students that you get will likely not get as good of an experience as the students who get you when you're more experienced and you've learned more. So I don't know that it, I mean, from a, from the institution's perspective, I guess you would get more information about whether somebody is a great teacher if they had taught more than one class. Like, I think it's probably pretty hard to interpret like student opinions of instructors from having taught just one class and things like that. Um, but uh, in terms of like your impact as a teacher or something like that, I think you just kind of have to learn as you go. So whether that's at your graduate institution or the place that you ultimately get a job, I'm not sure how much it matters really. Um, I think one thing that ends up happening to people, this happened to me is that I really had no idea like whether I liked teaching or not when I got my job. Um, and so I ended up getting a job at a place that is, um, I mean, not the least teaching focused place, but not like, it's not like a, um, liberal arts college or something like that. Um, so I think, yeah, for students who are going on the market, having very little teaching experience might um, mean that they don't have as much insight into how much they want to teach in their career. All right, for the next uh, formal question. So we kind of talk about, talked about the class of teaching of psychology. I think it's in the title of our podcast or in our name. And Nancy, you talked about like a pedagogical course where it was run differently than how we run it here. So like you can imagine that there might be a listener who's like never heard of like, what do you mean there's a teaching psychology class? What goes into that? How does one lead or instruct that? So I was kind of wondering like, for, if you, either of you can talk about like, what is TOP to you? Like, how is it structured? How is it run? As well as the students in there, like what's your end goal as kind of being this meta teacher? So like you have these people who are teaching for the very first time, they're going to be teaching 101. And, you know, by the end of the semester, you hope that they, as you know, nascent teachers that are emerging, like, what do you want out of that by the end of the semester? What would you like to see as the most ideal? Yeah, so I think um, with with teaching pedagogy, there are a few there are a few things. So you're actually teaching the science behind pedagogy and what techniques work and what techniques maybe are not as successful. So there's some just knowledge transfer, um, a little bit at least. Um, the good thing is is that we're all psychologists training to be psychologists, so we have a kind of basic understanding, even if you study something vastly different, of memory and learning. And so, so at least we have a little bit of foundation there. So, so that, that reach is not so hard. So there's some basic knowledge transfer in terms of pedagogical techniques. Um, and then I think there's um, the, the, the rest of it is predominantly a guide. So I kind of think of myself more as a guide. There's some practical things that I um, try to communicate, like how to physically build a syllabus and um, what, 
rules, if you will, in a syllabus would be a really good idea and which ones are probably not a good idea, you know, which ones are illegal. (laughs) So so there's some, some basics that I think, you know, are easier if somebody just communicates to you. And then for the rest, I think it's a guide in helping somebody find their own style and their own voice. And I don't want to, I don't think that, that there is one teaching style. I know there's not, I've seen so many highly, highly effective instructors that are vastly different from each other. And I think that's a good thing. I think students need to see different, they're going to connect to different people for different reasons. And so I like first to kind of guide and let students find their own voice. But the, the other thing that I think is really important is we're not just teaching people to be teachers in a classroom to undergraduate students, right? It's more, how do you disseminate knowledge in a clear way. I mean, so I think this is transferable to things like how would you write a one pager to send to legislative staff? Um, How would you communicate to um, doctors or um, principals or superintendents in your area about what they need to know, given the current research findings that are relevant to them? So I think it's more about disseminating information in general and people have a style they're going to develop their own style and i just hope that at the end of the goal my goal is that they are comfortable they develop a comfortable and effective style and i really like this idea of like taking a step back from not just teaching specifically but just science communication in general because that is effectively what we're doing as in the classroom it's we're trying to communicate the science but it can be applied and it can transfer to other domains yeah. Um, and I think what's interesting about TOP is that, you know, honestly, sometimes you teach it, but sometimes Alexa, you also teach it. So I'm sure like you have almost a distinct style. Like there's probably some similarities, but also maybe some unique stuff that you do as well. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I always hear people telling me how great Ansley is at teaching TOP. So same. I think that- <laughs> same. Um, I don't know if uh, it's allowed for me to ask questions since you guys are interviewing, but I'm like, I don't know all of these things about you, Ansley, and I'm like curious. So why'd you switch from, um, from industry to academia? And, and did you like always want to be a teacher or were you like more into being a researcher? I wanted to, to work with kids and be a psychologist. And it was just a really good job. So I just happened to graduate in a really, really good economy. I know that's <laughs> super braggadocious, <laughs> but And they were flying us all over the country to interview for jobs that didn't because they just didn't have enough people. I mean, so this is also right before Y2K. Right. And so they were just desperate for anybody they thought could program for the, you know, the end of the world. Right. And so all kinds of things. Right. So I just ended up in corporate training through this through this way. So that was kind of fun. But I always wanted to be a psychologist. I had planned on doing that before. It was just a little. So that was a legitimate thing. Just like, you know. Just in case of what would we do? And like, let's just prep for it by the corporate world or? No, no, they were like pro, like changing all the programming to be four digits instead of two digits. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. I was just, uh, yeah, that's and so they were They just didn't have enough programmers in general. So they were just hiring massive amounts of freshly BA'd undergraduates that they were going to, teach like Fortran and all kinds of these really old programming techniques to try to, you know, save it. Anyway, long story short, uh, this is just a quick aside, but it's so entertaining Uh, on the year 2000, I was in new Orleans on a roof and it was really foggy and people were setting off fireworks, but you couldn't tell that they were fireworks because it was so foggy. And I was like, fireworks, 
massive gun explosions. I'm not really sure given how we've set up Y2K, what's happening right now. Oh man. Fireworks. It was fireworks. Ansley yeah. is like my favorite person these days for 90s references that I know my students wouldn't get. Like Y2K, I haven't thought about that in ages. Um, also the other day we were in a meeting together and she texted me and she was like, well, I just about had something about Mary hair before I got into this meeting. And I was like, wow, I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. Because I'm old, man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Okay, so we are imagining that most of our audience is probably graduate students or people who are pretty early career. Um, And so as like some seasoned TOP teachers, like what are some of the most common challenges that your TOP students like face or like bring to you? And then in that line, like what's some of the most common advice that you find yourself giving to like first-time teachers or early teachers? A couple of things come to mind for me. So um, Ansley mentioned, you know, one of her roles as a TOP teacher, like making sure that you don't create a syllabus that's a disaster. Um, So I think this was true of me too. And I see this in my students, like uh, sometimes it's easy to think you're going to be like really tough Um, and then it's like a lot harder to reinforce those policies. So people will have things in their syllabus, like, you know, um, no late discussion notes, admissions for any reason, period, you know, like we're not putting up with your bullshit excuses, but then it's like really different when you're talking to a student and they're like, you know, died or something. Yeah. Their mother died. They like got in a car accident and they're now in a wheelchair. Like, you know, they deal with all kinds of, um, all kinds of stuff as we all do. Um, so I think, yeah, that sort of like coming into it, um, without sort of anticipating the kind of like compassion that, that you would want to have in those situations. Um, and then like another thing that I would be really curious if Ansley encounters this and what advice she gives is that I think one of the toughest things for being a first time teacher is just like the feeling the anxiety, like a lot of people have, just anxiety, like public speaking, but also just like, you know, in a role where you're supposed to be the expert and like you, you have these like 19 year olds, like looking at you, like, you know, and they just like, even I think when they're one of the first things that I tell TOP students is like, just because students look that they're so bored that they want to die, doesn't mean that they're not having a fine time in your class and like actually enjoying what you're saying, you know? So you have to like get over that initial, like, like visual negative feedback that that sometimes you experience. Um, But I think, I think students pick up on anxiety in teachers and aren't always so forgiving of it. So like that can be a rough hurdle. Um, And it's really, I don't know what advice, I think time um, is very helpful for anxiety and experience, but it's like kind of an unsatisfying piece of advice to be like, just wait it out. (laughs) It'll get better. Maybe next semester. Yeah, for real, right? Don't chum the waters. I was going to say, as a follow-up to that with, like, the anxiety and kind of, like, how you appear to your students, do you feel like, is there different, like, gendered advice that you would give to, like, for female instructors versus, like, male instructors? So, like, I know in the literature, it's, like, men who, like, can dress worse for wear still get, like, evaluated professionals and highlies. But, you know, I think, like you said, like, students might not be forgiving. And I immediately think of, like, maybe female instructors where they always have to you know, wear the makeup, wear nicer clothes to be seen as an expert. Like, has that ever come across or like have any of your students face like this almost like they're feeling lesser than because they're a woman or 
whatnot? It's more of like a personal curiosity question, if that's ever come up. I would say um, more so, I think, for students who appear closer to the same age as so the same age as the undergraduates. I mean, they may not be anywhere near their age, but they may just appear younger. Um, that's a little bit more of a hurdle. But um, yeah, I, I would say that 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 has come up a couple of times where so there are things that you do when you want to feel so just advise students to do the same thing that you do when you want to feel more in control and um, authoritative and um, so I just encourage people. So one thing that I personally do is if I want to feel more prepared and in control and authoritative, I just personally like to wear my nicer clothes, like more professional clothes. It just puts me in that mindset. Um, so that's just something that I do. Um, I also like to, you know, maybe print out my notes because it makes me feel, just makes me feel calmer. I've got my notes. I don't know. It just makes me feel calmer. You know, um, I like to put them in a folder that looks clean. Cause I don't know. It just makes me feel like, you know, organized and more prepared. I don't know. So I was looking back at my old notes or my old, um, tests and stuff from like 2008, 2009. And y'all, they were color coded, like, like, rainbow color organized like it was just beautiful I was like oh back in the day and I very clearly <laughs> needed this like comfort of of organization you know like I home edited my entire like <laughs> if you're familiar with that reference then my entire teaching curriculum everything was just beautiful rainbow organization but that I makes me I just yeah that makes me think like, I feel like throughout this conversation, I've been talking about um, teachers like getting better with experience <laughs> in some, in some ways, I think that we get worse. Cause like you like get lazier and like, you're not like, I don't, I don't color code anything anymore. Um, like your test might be in that pile. <laughs> <Good luck. laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to like dismiss, I, I think surely teachers experience um sexism from students and students may have different expectations and um give the benefit of the doubt to male teachers over female teachers and uh, you know on on many different dimensions but i always found that advice um frustrating like this advice that like oh if you're a woman teacher you need to like make sure that you are like dressing this way you can't put any um you know exclamation points in your emails or your students won't take you seriously because i feel like that advice almost reinforces those perceptions or those like stereotypes and i have also never found it useful for me so i was told that kind of thing when I first started here and I tried to be like more formal and more stern. And I don't think that I was as good of a teacher. Like it wasn't very natural to me. I think students felt like, like they felt like it was awkward and yeah. And then I think when I um, kind of like dropped that, those pretenses, I became a better teacher and students could see that I was more comfortable. So I don't think that's good advice, but I do think what Ansley said of like, find what works for you, you know, on the days that you need like a boost, do the thing that gives you a boost. Like that, I think that's great advice. Yeah. And I think Alexa, what you're pointing to is be who you are, right? Yeah. Be who you are. And that's one thing that you do such a beautiful job of is be who you are. And, and because students aren't going to believe it, why would they listen to what you have to say 
and knowledge transfer if they think you're a phony and a weirdo fake right? Like they're, <laughs> they're screaming, who is this clown person that's talking to me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's about being authentic. Yeah. And then you 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 find out that maybe you are a super compassionate person or maybe you find out, oh, I really like rules. I mean, yeah, there's some, no, you know, yeah. There's some people who are great at being strict, actually. Like they, you know, it's like their jam and, and students sometimes really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm just imagining like a trainer in front of you and like only thing going through your mind is who's this clown? Like, you're just like sitting, you're listening. And, like that's the only thought through your mind is just like, no. but you know we've all been to like a a talk or something where the person was just like so Mm -hmm. so off the walls that you were like what is happening here (laughs) Yeah. yeah i recently heard someone describe teaching as a performance art and i haven't stopped thinking about it since and i think there is something very performative about what we do like we want to like capture people's attention and we want them to like listen to us and i think there is an art to it but i'm wondering do you guys agree with that and then like do you have if you do agree like do you have any tips about how to become a better performer especially since anzi i think you use the term of like what was edu Yeah. So I really appreciate your question, Cassie, because I think that being interesting, you know, and engaging is very different than um, being vapid. You know, this is not Netflix, right? This is conveying information, right? Um, So I think, yeah, I mean, I think that they're different, but I also think that there are some people that are just more have kind of a bigger, I'm not a personality researcher. So those personality researchers are going to cringe, but just have kind of a little bit more, um, or more, a little bit more engaging, a little bit more, um, entertaining than other people. Um, and they tend to do my experiences. They tend to do a little bit better in the classroom because they're just a little bit more interesting to watch, but I don't know that necessarily their students do any better in learning the material. Does that make sense? So I think they might be more popular because they're more interesting, but I don't know that necessarily they're a better teacher. Yeah. And I do, I do think that there's an extreme where you're just so monotone and boring that you couldn't convey the information. So I think you're right, Cassie, there's like a sweet spot where you're interesting, engaging. Yeah. What do you think, Alexa? Um, I guess I think that it depends on like what you're what you're going for as a teacher. So certainly like if you're mostly lecturing, you have big classrooms, if there's like a, I I think there has to be a bit of a performance element to that. Um, And, you know, there are some people who they, they can just like talk for an hour or an hour and a half or whatever. And it's interesting to listen to them and like, they're funny and yeah, they're personable. And I definitely think that um, that is something that that is a bit performative i think that probably most people would be different in that role than they are just like having a conversation one-on-one in in general i feel like i've my i've been trying to shift my classes like more in a conversational direction or incorporating more sort of interaction with students and in that case i would say like i'm sort of deliberately trying not to be performative like when i catch myself sort of like doing things that feel like kind of gimmicky, like coming into the class every day with like a, like uh, current events question or something like that. I kind of try to push myself to like not do that because I want it to feel 
more like, um, I want the boundary between like what I'm like outside of the classroom and in the classroom to be, um, to be not that clear. Um, so yeah, to just sort of like be myself, I guess. Um, but that's, yeah, it's really different depending on whether you're lecturing or having a conversation with your students. Um, I remember when I first started to, uh, record my lectures. Like, so I taught one class, um, in an asynchronous fashion during COVID. Right. So like taking a video of myself and posting it online for students to watch whenever. And it, when I like just tried to be normal doing that, like recording myself talking, it was like, Holy shit, this is boring. Like, uh, like I can't even stay awake looking at myself. Right. So yeah, I, I was like, okay, I guess I gotta like bring some energy to this in my dining room somehow. Oh, challenges of COVID. So much fun. I do distinctly remember once Alexa, very early on in my time here, like you had just taught like a big class and you were like talking about standing in front of everybody, like wearing a microphone and you're like, this is the closest I'll ever be to being Taylor Swift. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Yep. It's true. That's funny. Yeah. Um, So talking about like challenges and advice that you often give your TOP students. Do you have any stories of like something wild that happened where you were like struggling to come up with advice for a student? Hmm. I would say that occasionally I have a student that gets hit on. Uh-huh. Oh, that's um, that does happen. Um, I don't struggle for advice with that, but that does happen. And again, anecdotally that tends to happen with the students that are closer in age to um yeah so yeah that does happen Mm -hmm. and sometimes I think the more struggle is you know you you also have to find so there are clearly ethical boundaries that are very clearly wrong and there are ones that are very clearly okay and then there are kind of these little gray spots right that are you sort of have to decide where you're okay in that gray zone so so social media is an example like i am not i have decided i am not friending my students on social media and i'm not going to accept a friend request and i've just decided to set that rule up for myself um, because that just creates a clear boundary that just takes away anxiety. And if a student friends me for whatever reason, I just say, I'm so sorry. I don't, you know, it just creates a clear boundary. Right. But I have had students that have said like, so this student asked if I would go with them. Uh, and if my boyfriend and her boyfriend, and we could all go to dinner, what do you think about that? And I'm like, Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't, mm." (laughs) you know, that's a little bit, I mean, it's like dinner. I wouldn't, but you know, I don't know. So, so, you know, that's very different than like, you know, having relationships with a student that's very, you know, it's, it's really in that sort of gray. I mean, I would personally say it's a little too black for me, but you know, so it's kind of advising students on these kind of awkward experiences that happen and they don't want to be rude and they don't want to shut the student down and make them feel not appreciated. Right. But at the same time, there are some ethical boundaries. Yeah. That's kind of awkward. It's sort of like that time that student asked you to be their friend, Alexa. Yeah. 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 Like in person. I, like all of the awkward situations I can think of were just with me. They were not with my TOP students. <laughs> can you tell that story? Um, yeah. So I was like teaching um a big lecture class and 
Um, it was like one of the earlier classes, maybe it was the first lecture. And after the lecture, this student came up to me um, and he was like, Hey, I was like wondering if I could ask you about something. And I was like, yeah, sure. And he was like, well, I'm like new to Tuscaloosa and like, I like don't really have like a lot of friends and like, you seem really cool. And like, you know, would you be like willing to like be my friend? And I was like, what do I say to this person? Like, I mean, and I was like going through my mind, like, okay, like, you know, I have relationships with students where I get coffee with them like once every couple of months like that. So I can sure. And I was like, sure. And then he was like, I was just playing with you. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, and you were like, you are automatically getting an A because you are hilarious. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I also like this is like um once I was there's a lot of like cheating examples and stuff like that. I think students deal with a lot or students who are teaching deal with a lot of um, you know, like plagiarism and academic misconduct and stuff like that. Um, but I had this student once who was taking an exam again, like a really big classroom. This is an in-person exam. And then I'm like walking around the room, you know, like as one does. And I noticed that there's a person sitting under her desk. Oh no. (laughs) And I was like, what are you doing here? And she was like, um, Alexa, visualize that for me. So like someone's taking a test, they're sitting uh at a desk and there's a second person immediately underneath them just like on the floor yeah so it's like what the? it's hard to imagine so it's in like an auditorium so like the the room rises as you go up what? so this person is sort of like disguised behind some of like the chairs that are in front of her and I was like what are you doing here and she wasn't in the class and she was like I just got my wisdom teeth taken out and I need like someone to be with me while like like post wisdom tooth surgery and i was like what? no you can't no. like find another friend like what are you doing here what um, so oh yeah, my just, gosh just like bizarre things that students do um so like around april fools cassie and i released an episode basically of like times we were foolish and like big no-nos or big mistakes we made as teachers and i was wondering do you would either of you be willing to share kind of like a time that you were foolish or you're just like you look back on and you're like, that was just a huge mistake on my part. I learned from them. I'm never doing that again. Like for my example, answer, I told them about the worm story here at UA where I made them basically massacre a bunch of worms. And I oh my like, gosh, yeah. I'll never forget that, Jacob. That was so funny. Okay, it's terrible. It's completely terrible. Peter, don't come after me. But so you were my guide. You were my TOP instructor at the time. And I just came to you and you're like, on your list of top 10, you said it made your list. And I'm like, oh, totally yes, that's, that's definitely in there for sure. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Let me give you some time, Ansley, because I I have I have multiple that come to mind, but one is um, that I once gave students ex- exams with the answers on them. Um, so, like the way that I used to create exams, I, I think this is still true. So maybe I haven't learned from this. Is like I would have a key for the exam that has the correct answers, like in red or whatever, like that, and then I have the actual copy of the exam, and so. Um, I usually create the key first and then like get rid of all the formatting and create the actual exam. And it was like, so it wasn't as bad as I'm making it sound. So it wasn't every question, but it was like, um, I had removed the formatting, but there was also like, um, some diagram questions and I hadn't changed that. And so they just all had the exam with the the answers to the diagram questions on it. 
Um, but I've made several mistakes like that, which is, I think, you know, if I can <laughs> sort of like flip this into a positive, I think that's like one thing that's nice when I'm teaching TOP is that students are like, I mean, it's scary to think that you can make mistakes like that. Right. And I think people, students are really nervous, but there's always a solution, you know, you just like figure it out. It's never the end of the world. Yes. So I do remember. So one time I had, well, many times I've had activities go wrong. Um, and in this one particular instance, it was pretty funny. So I um, was playing sort of like a Jeopardy game, if memory serves, where students were supposed to sort of buzz in their answers to help them practice for an exam. And I uh, didn't have any buzzers. So, but I did have bouncy balls that had come in. So remember, I'm a developmental psychologist. So sometimes we have prizes that uh, we have. And so I did have bouncy balls. And um, so I told the students to lightly toss the bouncy ball to the front of the room when they knew the answers, forgetting that they were like the super bouncy balls and they bounced everywhere. And I got completely pelted by bouncy balls that the students didn't throw them at me, but they hit me anyway. So yes, sometimes activities don't go as planned and sometimes it turns out in a really funny way. Um, but true story, don't use bouncy balls as your buzzers. Well, thank you both so much for uh, being here today and talking with us. Yes, it was yeah, so thanks fun. for having us. Absolutely. Yeah. We really enjoyed it. And of course, so your listeners know y'all are both amazing, amazing instructors and are just, we're just the cream of the crop. And so we're just so thrilled to talk to you about um, pedagogical techniques and teaching and graduate school. Um, on your podcast yeah you guys are legit people should follow all of your advice <laughs> they yeah. should absolutely award-winning yeah award-winning literally yeah literally. <laughs> yeah like so we appreciate you both again thank you thank you for your time um and i think i'll wrap up the interview session yeah yeah yes bye-bye <laughs> Hello, hello again. We just wanted to thank you one more time for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.